This is the Author Archive podcast. You probably know about the Beirut hostages. This happened in the last century. There were three of them who were held from April 1986 to August 1990. There was John McCarthy, Terry Waite, and there was Brian Keenan. Now, I met Brian Keenan. He wrote a memoir called An Evil Cradling, but then he wrote a novel. And when I met him 20-odd years ago, this is the conversation. It's called, it looks like it's called Turlock, but it's pronounced Turlock. Who was Turlock? When did he live? He was born in Ireland, and somewhere in County Meath, we're not too sure, in 1670. He died on the Roscommon Leitrim border, which is north of the island of Ireland, and uh, 63 years later, 1733. That was a long life for those days. He should have been dead in his early 30s. Okay. Now, he's a musician. He's a musician. And if you're, in, if you're Irish, he's a legendary musician. He is an Irish icon. He played the harp. He's considered by traditional musicians throughout the island of Ireland and further abroad to be the founding father of traditional Irish music. Okay. So at its crassest level, there wouldn't be river dance without Turlock. Yeah, there wouldn't be river dance without Turlock. That's right. Uh, I, I did say it at its crassest hmm. level. Now, I mean, are you a fine exponent of the Celtic harp yourself, or do you play the fiddle or something? No, uh, I have to be honest, I don't have a musical bone in my body. I'm musically illiterate. Uh, so wh I know what you're going to ask me, why would I write one of these books uh, about a um, musician? The answer is because I had to. Uh, the genesis of the book uh, begins in a hole in the ground in Beirut. How long ago was that? Uh, 14 years ago. I'm home 10 years. I was on holidays in Beirut, as I call them, for yeah. four and a half years. So it began uh, and, and d during the first nine months of my captivity, when you spend that long time in isolation, in the dark, blindfolded, very hungry, very frightened, very stressed, very traumatized. Uh, and darkness, deprivation, isolation, those classic unhingers of the mind. In such circumstances, people come to visit, strange people. Now, I mean, here on the web, I can, I can ask you things that I can't ask you sort of on television. You're there. I hadn't realised the sensory deprivation was so extreme. And were you, were you blindfolded all the time? No, uh, you, you had to wear a blindfold whenever the guards, your captors, yeah. come into the room or the cell. Uh, you took it off uh, when they left, but it didn't help because you were in darkness. There was no light. And when Turlock came to call, I want to understand which of your senses did he call upon? How did you register the visit, the presence? It, it, it didn't become a presence until later. There was no sense of presence. It, it was simply, out of the blue, like a bolt from a blue, the name Turlock Carlin is in my head, and I don't know why. 
because I know very, very little. I know only that he was blind, he played the harp, and he lived in Ireland several centuries ago. That was all I knew of the man. And I began to question furiously, why, why, what, what is this man doing in my head? Why is he here? And you ask lots of questions, and the questions make you think about who he was. Uh, what is it really like to be blind? How blind am I? Uh, then, over the months, weeks, uh, images come into your head that they may be hours apart, they may be days apart. You're never sure because time has evaporated in this place. Images would flash into your head. I distinctly remember uh, seeing uh, in my mind uh, a young boy standing by, by a river. And I thought, well, well, what is this? Uh, and I thought it was something from my own personal history flashing back because that's what happens. But I couldn't find where it was in my personal history, what it related to. I had a sense, maybe this is him. Maybe this is Carolyn. What if it is? And it didn't matter whether it was or whether it wasn't. It was something to latch on to. Uh, you, you capture these images. You pull them out of the air. Uh, and you work with them. You elaborate them. You put reasons around why the boy's there. What, what is he thinking about? Where has he come from? Uh, what's he doing there? Why is he so intently watching the water and not doing anything? Uh, and these flashes come at random. No sequence, there's no linear progression, there's no gradient along which it, a story is developing. Uh, it's like somebody has thrown down in front of you a Picasso jigsaw and you never saw a Picasso image and you've got to put all this fragmentation together and make it whole and find a human source in it. So has this been haunting you then for 10 years? You say, you know, why did I write this book? Well, I had to. Yeah. Is that, you felt that compulsion for 10 years? I, I, I have felt that, that compulsion. It, I, I describe it as being like a monkey on your shoulder. When I first came back, I thought about it mm, after I'd finished with an evil cradling, and I thought, maybe I'll, I'll write something about Carl. But when I thought about my, my own handicaps, I'm not blind, and I write quite visually. I don't have music. Uh, I don't play an instrument. Uh, and the, the, the historic period in which he lived in, in Ireland was one of the most horrendous mm. and one of the most complex to understand, even historians when I talk to them, tell me we haven't really resolved this period in European and in particularly in, uh, in Irish history. It needs to be revisited again with, with, with the tools that this historian now has. And it hasn't been resolved because it's still being resolved in the streets of the town where I come from, Belfast. There are people still have a mindset of 300 years ago. So there was all these problems to deal with and I, and I kept Oh, no, no, it's too, too, too difficult or it's too tedious. And in another sense, I thought to myself, if I was Dostoevsky, if I was Tolstoy, I could write a great Irish epic with Carolyn, this blind musician, moving through this blasted landscape and telling a story about a people and a culture in chaos, a culture disappearing, the new colonialism of Christianity of England and of Europe, the blood and the slaughter, all happening. But I'm not Tolstoy. So I, 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 I put the notion away in despair, and the more I put it away, the harder the monkey 
beat on my head and tore out my hair and whispered into my ear, I told you my story. I told it for a reason. Tell my story. Hang on, let me just stop you there. You heard a voice. Mm. Really? Well, well, a voice in your head. Yeah. yeah. Which I describe as being a monkey. It was incess incessant, chattering. Tell my story. I mean, it, it, it's just, I mean, I don't mean to, if it is spooky, when you tell it, it's spooky. Did well, it feel spooky to you? No, it, it, and it doesn't feel spooky to me because it's easily rationalised. If, if, if you spend nine months in the dark and thinking intensely and deeply about this man of whom you know nothing, and if through your mind's working like a, a steam piston, it's working hard, it's working fast, uh, and you, you keep elaborating and building this story, you create for yourself a landscape into which you can disappear out of that cell. You're able to push the walls back. And because you spend so much time inside yourself, examining yourself, your history, your emotional makeup, and you experience terrible ups and downs and onslaughts of emotional despair uh, and joy, you're honing the tools to get inside the skin of another human being in which you can disappear into so that you're no longer there. Now you come home with that psychologically imprinted on the back of your head and that's the monkey because it's imprinted there and it keeps echoing back to you. Do you feel then an empathy with this with this human being? I mean you can't, you can't empathise with the musical side but do you empathise with other sides? Yeah, of, of course I do. Um, there's there's parts of him I don't like. Uh, like what? Uh, he he was terribly conceited. Uh, he was arrogant. Uh, he turned his back on where he came from. He was a barefoot Irish peasant with very little education, and he walked away from that. He became flamboyant, cocky, assured, despising of where he came from, or perhaps afraid of where he came from. And the book's an attempt to explore how he dealt with this. Here's a man who's blind, blinded by smallpox when he was about 18, we have to accept, who walked away and walked out of the culture that formed him, that created him, that gave him some kind of psychic and mystical insight uh, to become a flamboyant, cocky kind of, I don't know, a Jimi Hendrix of his period the kind of, uh, and even, even his fellow musicians didn't like him because of what he, what he was doing to a very old and very dearly held tradition of music in Ireland. He was turning it up and infusing it with new tempos, with new styles of playing, with new rhythms, which were alien. But I, I, who, who can like a man like that? But then here's a man who's also deeply compassionate. A man who's uh, devout, uh, has no time for the Catholic Church. Uh, a man who's an alcoholic, who's supposed to be a womanizer. But people don't choose to become alcoholics. There's a reason why people become alcoholics. And if they are womanizers, uh, there's a reason for that. Uh, maybe there's a hole inside you. Uh, 
that you need to fill up, whether it's with alcohol or with sex. Uh, and it's finding out what that hole is and what it does to a man. And it's, the book's really an attempt, not to write about a musician, although there's lots of music in this book, but it's an attempt to disinter a human being out of the pages of history, a human being that's, that, that's been forgotten, apart from in, in Ireland, where he's only remembered for his music, and present them as fleshy, as flawed, as very human, and a genius who, at the end of his life, kicked open the doors on traditional Irish music, created something new, let light in, and through that door, some superb musicians have walked ever since to find a first foothold. And in that sense, he was very much a founding father. Did you have to? Did you do a lot of research about the historical Turlock? I, I, I researched as much as was available. Uh, unfortunately, the research kind of resolves itself out on the music. Uh, what it was, whom he played it for, where he played it, and constant arguments about which piece of music is really his and what piece of music he stole from somebody else and elaborated and put its own name to it. Uh, that didn't concern me. Uh, I wanted to find who he was. Uh, music is created by human beings. Where it comes from, I don't know, because I'm not a musician, but it's created through human beings. There's a human engagement with sound and form and, and, I, and I want to find the human being that created what, what he did, and why he did, and how he felt about it. Now the monkey's off your back because you've done it. Yeah. Great sense of relief? A huge sense of relief. I, I, uh, I didn't expect to be as relieved as I am. I have a sense that the monkey's well off my shoulder and he's out there somewhere, dancing in the light, fantastic, jumping up and down and clapping his hands, and maybe even saying thank you. Uh, and that's a big sense of relief. And th th there's another sense to it that the compulsion to write the book for me was that if I don't tell this man's story, if I don't write this, I'm not going to be able to write anything else. So I, I had to get the monkey off my shoulder. Are you going to write something else? I, uh, <laughs> I don't know. I, 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 I always say after each book, that's it. No more friggin' books. I've had enough. I, I, I. Uh, I find writing a labour, a, a real labour. Uh, I don't enjoy the labour of writing. I'd rather do 10 hours on a building site than 10 minutes in front of a piece of paper. Uh, but, I mean, who am I to, to, to kind of confine myself in such a way? I've had enough of confinement. Maybe 18 months down the line, something might come creeping in underneath the door and say, hello, Brian. And It'll maybe be another monkey back again. It's going to be a movie too, isn't it? It has been bought by an Australian production company. The screenplay is now being done by uh, apparently the finest screenplay writer that Australia has produced. He contacted me last week, said he was at the first Loch Derg sequence, which he was having huge troubles with because it was so terribly written and so beautifully done, he didn't want to change it. Uh, I spent three weeks with, his name is Mac, uh, gone th through the story with him and my sense of it, my sense of the man. So, uh, it'll be, well, one never knows with movies, you know, people want to make it, then you have to find money. Uh, so it might come off, but it's been bought, the screenplay is being prepared, it should be done, the first draft by Christmas, 
I don't know what they do after that, I suppose. they Once they get the money, man, and I don't know. It's another well, this, world. This book exists because of that ghastly time when you were held. Would you have ever written a book if you hadn't had to go through that? No. I would never have written this book in a million years. I would never have thought about writing uh, such a book. I certainly would not have written uh, An Evil Cradling. I may have written Between Extremes. I've been a traveller all my life. I've always enjoyed travelling. Uh, I've been to lots of places. But strangely, and I don't think it's because of uh, my Beirut experience, my, my, I don't feel that compulsion to travel anymore. Or if I do, the travels are always inward. There is a kind of, I feel like, uh, a route map in our central nervous system, uh, which is laid down. And you follow it if, if, if you choose to do so, but it's there. Do you get days now where the Beirut experience doesn't cross your mind, or is it forever with you? It's, it's only forever with me because people see you in the street and go, there's your man. You're the hosties, aren't you? Uh, but I don't think about it. It doesn't, doesn't cross my mind. I, I very rarely talk about it. Even if, I, uh, even if I meet other guys that I was locked up with, we, don't, we, 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 don't, we never talk about it. Uh, so it's gone for me. It's passed. It's over. It was 10 years ago. But I'm left with this kind of uh, image that people have. And I was in a bookshop not two days ago, signing books. And uh, a very nice, gracious lady came up and just said, very softly, almost w w with, with tears in her eyes, welcome home. And I think, that's 10 years ago. You know. So it's there for them still. Uh, but it's gone for me. So here we are international best-selling novelist. The book is <laughs> and, um, creator of movies. The book is called Turlock. It's fabulous. It's the work of Brian Keenan. Brian. Thanks very much. Thank you.